John chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen. That they have been done in God. In John chapter 3, Jesus has been having a conversation with Nicodemus. He's a religious leader. He is a Jew. He is a Pharisee. And we have seen the dullness of Nicodemus in verses 9 and 10. His disbelief in verses 11 and 12. The deity of Jesus in verse 13. The determination of God to save in verses 14 and 15. God's declared love in verse 16. And now we come to God's design. God's purpose in sending Jesus in verse 17. And then God's judicial determination to remain both just. That means true to his character. True to his nature. True to his word. And the justifier of the lost, the sinful, the wicked, human beings. And then the conversation takes a dark turn in verses 19 and 20 to mankind's depraved condition. But there's hope. Because Jesus gives us a way out of the darkness, there's a way to escape from the darkness. And that's why we're calling this message the great escape from darkness. And the way that we escape from the darkness, according to verse 21, is that we embrace the light and we're willing to practice the truth. Jesus has directed the conversation with Nicodemus to the most important question that we can ever raise. The most important question that we can ask. And that question is, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus gives the answer. You must believe in Jesus. As a matter of fact, according to people who study these things, every single person on average makes about 3,000 decisions every day. You will wake up in the morning or you'll decide not to. You will decide if you're going to shower or shave. You will decide if you're going to brush your teeth. You're going to decide which cologne or perfume to put on. You're going to decide what dress you're going to wear. You're going to decide what program you're going to watch. You're going to decide what you will or won't do. You will decide moment by moment, minute by minute. You will make decisions. And most of the decisions that you make will be meaningless in the grand scheme of things. But there is one decision that you will make. That will be the difference between being in the dark and being in the light. Between being in a lie and being in the truth. It will be the difference between being condemned and being saved. As a matter of fact, there are three musts. You must be born again. You must believe that Jesus is the atonement. Remember, it says... In verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. As a matter of fact, this is the unchangeable condition for entrance into the kingdom of God. Then and now, you must be born again. And so Jesus speaks of the necessity of new life in verse 7. And then he speaks about the possibility of new life in verse 14. 
The Son of Man must die. This is divine redemption on a cross. The absolute necessity of an atonement. Jesus must die in a sacrificial offering. That offering is for your sin. That offering is for my sin. That offering is for our sin. We must believe in Jesus. In verse 15 it says, whoever believes. In verse 16, that whoever believes in Him. In verse 18 it says, he who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The Bible speaks of the condition for life. That's belief. This is our faith. We have to believe in him. Faith is the link that forges a chain, the connection between our soul and Christ. When we believe him, our soul, and we look to him on the cross, we experience regeneration. We are born again. God's new life of the spirit comes into our souls. So the fact of Jesus, his entrance into the world, provide all people with the ultimate test to choose to accept him or to reject him. The ultimate test is the test of belief versus unbelief, of choosing whether you're going to continue in darkness, whether you're going to continue in sin, whether you're going to continue on this crash course of destruction or pass into the light. Pass into life. The object of Christ's mission was not judgment, but salvation. And so we're faced with one of the great paradoxes in the Gospel of John. The love of God and the judgment of God. We are confronted by Jesus with the subjects of belief and condemnation and conviction. Look again in verse 17, this present darkness. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Remember the context. Jesus is speaking to a religious leader, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Jew and he is a Pharisee. And the common belief at that time was that Messiah would come. And when Messiah came, he would restore the throne of his father, David, that he would literally divide the world into two camps, those who are with him and those who are against him. They believed that the Messiah would come and that Israel would be reinstated to its point of glory. And the rest of humanity, the Gentile nations that stood in opposition to the Jew and that stood in opposition to the Messiah, that they would be condemned. And Jesus basically says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be Saved. They were counting on national deliverance for Israel, condemnation of the Gentile nations. But Jesus once again reminds them that the great divide, the border between right and wrong, good and evil, dark and light, is he himself. As a matter of fact, he doesn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And the type in the picture is found in the Old Testament. When God told Noah to build an ark, he did not ask Noah to build the ark in order to condemn the world, but rather so that his family could be saved. It is so that he, along with his wife and his three children and their children, could walk into the instrument of deliverance and salvation. As a matter of fact, we learn later in John chapter 12, verse 47, Jesus says, and if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And then in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
Many of you have heard the oft-repeated story of a world travel, traveler who circled the globe in search of salvation and in search of the truth. And he found himself in a bed of quicksand and he slowly began to sink. And by and by, Confucius came. And he said, Confucius says, it is quite clear Man should steer clear of mud and sand. And he went on his way. Muhammad came by and said, Poor man, alas, it is the will of Allah. And he went on his way. And Buddha came by and said, This man's dilemma should serve as an illustration to all. Watch, learn. And he went on his way. Krishna came by and said, Better luck next time in your next life. Remember when you come back, avoid the quicksand. And he went on his way. And then Jesus came along and saw the man and reached out to him and took him by the hand and pulled him out of the sand You see, that's the difference between the Lord Jesus Christ and every religion. Every religion attempts to find God, but Jesus finds us in our sad and lost condition. Others may reveal the condition of human beings. Some may even point to a life of sacrifice and humility. But only Jesus, only Jesus comes down from heaven and rescues us from the quicksand of sin. Yet elsewhere, Jesus says in John chapter 9, verse 39, and Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world and those who do not see may see and those who see may be made blind. What? Well, which is it? Is it for salvation or is it for judgment? It would appear to be both. Salvation for those who will look to him and see and judgment for those who look at him and remain blind. Don't you understand what's happening? Jesus makes himself the great divide, the great line. It is Jesus who is the line between light and dark, between salvation and condemnation. The great line is not Catholicism and Protestantism. The great divide isn't even Christianity in every world religion. The great line is the line between being lost and being found, being condemned and being saved. And Jesus makes himself that line. Humanity is in what we might call a perpetual state of condemnation. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated condemned is the word rasa. Now, that's different from in Spanish. In Spanish, the word rasa means race. But in Hebrew, it means a judicial pronouncement of guilt. But rasa can also mean to be wicked or to act wickedly. Another word, a psalm, means to offend or to be found guilty. The thought was a person who acts wickedly has brought condemnation on themselves. Isaiah understood this when he wrote in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him The iniquity of us all. And so in the New Testament, the word translated condemn means to give judgment against or to render judgment or to pronounce guilt. And often, actually at every time in the New Testament, when it's used in relationship to God, the repeated testimony of the scripture is that human beings are in a state of condemnation. They are in a state of perpetual guilt. They are therefore in also a perpetual state of judgment. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. There's no one who does what's right. And so the Bible says that we can avoid God's condemnation by trusting Jesus 
as Lord and Savior. And so in verse 18, it says, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Just like verse 16 is one of those powerful passages filled with so much information, it's almost impossible to plummet. Verse 18 is exactly the same way. Verse 18 asks and answers three of the most frequently asked questions. Number one, who is saved and why? Number two, who is lost and when? And three, why are the lost lost? The answer, who is saved? He who believes in him. The person who's saved isn't the person who just has a belief system. It doesn't say a good person. He who believes in him, that is, in the Messiah, in God's son, the only begotten son, is not condemned. Who is lost? He who does not believe in him is condemned already. When are they lost? Now. The person is lost now. For those of you who sit around and go, hey, I wonder what's going to happen when I die. I wonder what's going to happen when I when I come to that final place where I no longer live and I have to stand before God and I have to give an account of my life. Guess what? The Bible teaches that the world is divided into two great camps of people, those who are saved and those who are lost. And if you are lost, you are lost now. You are lost already. The word already is two Greek words, ed. It is, again, a word that speaks of a judicial pronouncement of guilt. It is where the judge has rendered the verdict. The verdict is guilty. And you've already been sentenced to a life of perpetual estrangement apart from God. So belief in and of itself doesn't save. He who believes. Well, I believe what? What do you believe? Well, I believe in God. James says the devil believes in God and trembles. Simple acknowledgement of belief doesn't seem to be what he's talking about. It's belief in him. And this is faith. It is a belief that leads to faith, trust. Who is condemned? The unbeliever. And note the stress is unbelief in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The unbelief in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The believer who has committed his or her life to the Lord Jesus Christ is different from the person who is not. And here's Jesus' words. The unbeliever's condemnation is certain. It's sure. It's factual. The unbeliever can ignore and medicate themselves. They can excuse themselves. They can refuse the offer of salvation. They can disavow any knowledge of God or Jesus. They can struggle. They can defer. They can deny that there's a judgment. They can deny that there's a judgment that's going to come. They can say, I certainly believe in God, but I don't believe in a devil. I certainly believe in heaven, but I can't bring myself to believe that there's a hell. Well, guess what? Your belief isn't going to change the circumstances of what's real and what's true. Jesus tells us what's real and what's true. The unbeliever is under the curse of sin. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, they are without Christ, aliens from God, strangers to the promises of God, without hope, without God in the world. The unbeliever already stands guilty before God. And for all sin and for every sin. Some of us like to think, well, you know, people don't go to hell for lying. People don't go to hell for cheating. People don't go to hell for stealing. People don't go to hell for murdering. Yes, they do. They go to hell for that and more. But guess what? He puts them in two broad categories. The broad categories are 
a rejection of Jesus. And the other broad category is a deep love and a commitment to darkness. You see, the unbeliever has elected to pay the full and complete penalty for his or her own sins. The unbeliever, at the moment that they reject the promise of God, once they reject the Messiah of God, once they reject hope in Jesus, they elect to save themselves. They elect to be responsible before God for every thought that they think, for every word that they say, for every deed that they commit. The unbeliever is elected to pay the full and complete penalty for themselves for every transgression. They are under the full force, the absolute imperative of the law. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes, For as many, for as many as are of the works of the law are under its curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Well, I I, I keep most of the rules. That's not what the Bible says. It, It doesn't say do most of them. Look, seven out of ten commandments. That's that's a C where I come from. But you know what? The Bible says that if you're guilty of just one thing, you're guilty of all things. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. You want to be justified by the law? Fine. But the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please him. The Bible says that the just shall live by faith. What does that mean? It means they will come to grips with their circumstance and they will come to grips and they will say, I can't live by the law because I am a lawbreaker. The believer is released, exonerated, pardoned from their condemnation. But it says he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. One of the most frequently asked questions I get is, well, what about the people who have never believed in Jesus? What about the person who's never heard the name of Jesus? They are condemned already. Doesn't that motivate you to go tell them about Jesus? At what point are you going to go? What does this mean? It means that you have a responsibility to get up and tell them the truth. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. It isn't that God sends hopeless and helpless people on a whim to hell. Each and every person who has ever been born on the planet Earth is born apart from God, estranged from God. And they need to have a right relationship with God. Some people will say, well, but, but, but that doesn't answer my question. Oh, well, I'm going to get to your question. Do you really want to know what happens to the people who have never heard the name of Jesus? I'm more than happy to answer your question. But you have heard. You know the truth. You heard the truth. Your dark, wicked, sinful circumstances have been taken care of. God sent his son, Jesus. The light has come into the world. If you will look to him, if you will believe in him, you can be born again. I'm more than happy to answer your question. But you still have to confront the claims of Christ. Oh, and by the way, the answer to your question is this. The Bible makes it clear in Romans chapter 2 that God will evaluate everyone based on two things. Creation and conscience. In Romans, it says that God is the creator and he has created all things. And every single human being in every single place on this planet Earth, wherever the sun comes up, wherever a person can see or understand that he or she is a part of a creation, intuitively understands that there is a creator. 
The second thing is every person born without exception is born with a conscience, the ability to know right from wrong and good from evil and to evaluate their own life and their own circumstances and their own behavior and to come to the conclusion of whether or not what they've done is right or wrong. And the moment that a person whispers into their own heart what you did was wrong, you become accountable for that wrong deed. Judgment was not the mission of Jesus. In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said, Most assuredly, or what I'm about to say to you is true. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. That's the judicial pronouncement of guilt. But has passed from death into life. Jesus says, for the person who, who looks to Jesus in confidence and faith and believes what God has said concerning him about his life and his death and his resurrection is immediately acquitted. The father brings down the gavel and says, not guilty, exonerated, pardoned. That's why Paul later in the book of Romans in chapter eight, verse one, could write with complete confidence. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That is another way of saying this. There is therefore now no judicial pronouncement of guilt. There is no appearance before the judge. There is no guilty sentence for those who are in Christ Jesus. You'll notice what it says. Not in Catholicism, not in Protestantism, not in Christianity, not into a philosophical circumstance, not into right thinking and right living or right this and right that. It is in this person. Jesus is the line of demarcation. Who walk according, who do not walk according to the flesh. That means they don't walk in a way that is apart from Christ, but with Christ, according to the spirit. Judgment is the ever-present consequence of rejection of Jesus. So the unbeliever, the make-believer, lives currently under the constant, not just threat, but promise of conviction. Everyone will respond to the gospel. Judgment is the ever-present consequence of rejection. Everyone will respond to the gospel. Everyone will respond. Everyone will respond in belief or in unbelief. All who respond in unbelief, their final doom, their inevitable judgment is clearly stated by Jesus. You can underline it. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And remember, it isn't just the magic words of the name. It isn't saying Yeshua in the Hebrew language. It isn't saying Yezu in French. It isn't saying Jesus in Spanish. It is all that that name represents. It's all that that name embraces. It is the sum and the substance of the content of all of the promises that the angel made when the angel said to his mother, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. It's so simple. It's so simple. Why doesn't everyone come to Christ? This is why. Because man loves darkness. Look at verse 19. And this is the condemnation. This is the judicial pronouncement of guilt. This is the guilty sentence. This is the verdict. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Here is the statement that Jesus is making concerning his own appearance. That human beings are without excuse. They may have been partially ignorant. They may have been somewhat oblivious to the circumstance. But guess what? The light has come. The light has come into the world. Jesus has come. 
John gives two reasons why men are already condemned. Number one, he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. That's reason number one. And now, number two, men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. This is the great damning sin. This is the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief ignores the testimony of Jesus. It ignores the life of Jesus. It ignores the death of Jesus. It ignores the resurrection of Jesus. It ignores the claims of Jesus. I need more information. I need to know more. I need to know more. The dignity of God's son is ignored. The truth of God's son is rejected. The goodness of God's son is spurned. The dearest, dearest person in God's heart is denied. The name above every name is abused and then cursed. And then the only, only son is refused. And since Jesus Christ is God's perfect remedy for man's sin, and because Jesus Christ is God's only remedy for man's sin, rejecting him, Refusing to believe in him means that the individual of necessity embraces condemnation. It's not so simple. Gary Burge writes in his wonderful commentary on this passage, quote, the affections of people in the world are corrupt. Their desires fallen. They are eager. They are not eager to be redeemed. They love darkness instead of light. In fact, they hate the light. This is strong language which uncovers something of the seriousness of the moral struggle between God and the world. Evil and darkness do not ignore the light. They wage war against the light. They try to bring it down. But despite these efforts, the darkness cannot vanquish the light. The darkness launches a battle that brings about its own defeat. Unquote. If you don't believe me, look again at John chapter one, verse nine. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Here's the deal. The combined armies of darkness cannot quench the light. The sum and the substance of all of the ignorance, of all of the pain, of all of the wickedness, of all of the sin cannot overthrow the light. And again, Despite these efforts, the darkness cannot vanquish the light. And remember, if the darkness launches a battle that brings about its own defeat, how does it do that? Because the moment that you oppose the light, the moment that you resist the light, the moment that you reject the light, you reveal the circumstances of your own heart and your own soul. Of the wicked, dark circumstances that's called your heart. John Wilkes Booth wrote, I have too great a soul to die like a criminal. You may not know who John Wilkes Booth was. He is the man who assassinated Abraham Lincoln on April 14th, 1865. John Wilkes Booth was an actor. He was beloved. He was handsome. He was articulate. He was charismatic. He said, I have too great a soul to die like a criminal. But do you know how he died? Like a criminal. Do you know why he died like a criminal? Because he shot Abraham Lincoln and he fled for his life. And as he fled for his life, the whole nation began to search him. And there was not a place, there was not one place where he could go, where he would not be found. And they found him and they surrounded him and they asked him to give up and he refused. And one of the Union soldiers stuck 
his rifle into the barn where he was and shot him in the throat. And he died like a criminal. In verse 20, it says, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. The unbeliever practices evil and hates the light and refuses to come to the light. And remember here, that becomes a metaphor, a euphemism, because Jesus is the ultimate expression of light. The unbeliever loves his or her sin. The unbeliever doesn't want to turn and face the conviction of the light, because turning to the light means turning away from sin. And the unbeliever isn't ready to give up his sin. In my life, I may have met five intellectual atheists in my whole life. Do you know why most people don't come to Jesus? It isn't because they have a philosophical or an intellectual issue. It's because they love their sin. They love their independence. They love their so-called freedom. They love to be able to go where they want to go and do what they want to do. The sinner loves his or her pleasure. And the Bible reminds us that sin is pleasurable. It's pleasurable. It's stimulating. And sometimes it's even comfortable. But the Bible tells us also, be sure. Be sure that your sin will find you out and be sure that the wages of sin is death. To give up the power, to give up the fame, to give up the independence, to give up the freedom is unthinkable. And the sinner loves it all too much to give it up. And the unbeliever is full of pride, saturated and soaked in self, unwilling, unable to confess their sin and turn to the light. And the unbeliever is the bondservant. That means the willing slave to sin. A slave by choice, without strength. With only the delusion that occasional good deeds will keep the delusion intact. The unbeliever fears the shame. The unbeliever fears the embarrassment. The unbeliever fears the consequence of sin, but they're not willing to give it up. On NBC Dateline, Chris Hansen had yet another Catch a Predator episode. This time it was in Kentucky. This time, a young girl who was 19 posed as a 13-year-old on the Internet, and people drove from Tennessee, and people drove from Indiana, and people drove from Illinois. Every pervert and wicked child molester that you can think showed up on this girl's doorstep. And without exception, Chris Hansen asked each and every one of the perverts, what do you think should be done to you? Without exception. Each one who answered said, I think I should get help. I think I should get counseling. I think I should get therapy. One even said, maybe I should lose my job. But you know what not one of them said? Not one of them said, I should go to prison. I should be put to death. I should be placed in a circumstance where I never, ever, ever have to hurt anyone ever again. But they didn't. A survey was given at San Quentin Prison to all of the prisoners. They each and every one of them were asked the question, do you think you're basically a good person? Without exception, each and every one of them answered the question, yes, even when they were committing a crime. You know why? Because the Bible says they would. Every man speaks well of himself. And so. They won't turn. Some people claim they have an intellectual problem with the gospel. And I suspect that there are some people who, in fact, have intellectual and philosophical opposition to the claims of Christ. It may be true that some people are ignorant of basic Christianity. It may be true that people are life oriented and not death oriented. They don't really like to think about the moment that they will die and the consequences of their life. They're pleasure oriented rather than sin oriented. And some people may be more aware of their doubt than they are of their guilt. Some people may have a negative view of Christians and Christianity. They may have experienced multiple alienations, cultural, linguistic, social, economic, psychological. They may be skeptical. They may be untrusting. But in the end, 
There's something deep down inside of them that wants to continue in their sin. Robert Schuller blames low self-esteem. He writes, and I quote, Our natural inability to trust God's love or to trust Christ's offer of salvation and forgiveness stems from our deep lack of self-worth. We simply do not value ourselves enough to believe that we can truly be loved unconditionally and non-judgmentally. So we resist at a profoundly deep level the divine invitation to salvation by grace. Our innate sense of shame and unworthiness compel us to believe that we have to earn love and do something. Schuler would later write, I'm not what I think I am. I'm not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. Well, you know what I think you are? I think you're wrong. And I think you're sad. You couldn't be more wrong. We aren't what we think each other think. Listen carefully. We are two things. We are what Jesus thinks of us because he's the only one who has an accurate understanding of each and every person and each and every circumstance. And here's the second part. You are. You are not what you simply think and you are not what you simply believe. You are what you actually do in real life. That may shock you, it may annoy you and it may bother you. But guess what? You are what you really do. In the end, Jesus tells Nicodemus, light has come into the world. Light has come into the world. You may be partially ignorant. You may be completely ignorant. Your deeds may have been simply misguided. Freud saw man's basic drive as the drive for pleasure. Adler saw power as needs as fundamental. Frankel identified humanity's widespread need for meaning. But Jesus, Jesus, Jesus states that fallen humanity loves darkness and they won't come to the light. And because man loves darkness, he won't embrace the light, but he will embrace excuses. Now it's not a good time for me to be a Christian. I'm too busy to be a Christian. I need more time to think about it. I need answers to life's questions. But guess what? Ask all you want. I've spent my whole life answering people's questions. I did a little math. On my radio program, I think I have answered close to 27,000 questions. Can you believe that? My favorite question? What must I do to be saved? You must be born again. You must look to the atonement of Jesus as the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. And you must believe in him. And here's the great escape from darkness. In verse 21, it says, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Here's the idea. How do we escape the darkness? Jesus tells Nicodemus, he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Here, Jesus is in effect saying that the real person who loves the truth will come to the truth and expose themselves to the truth. There is an alternative to darkness. We can practice the truth. And by the way, the verb is continuous in its action when it says but he who does the truth, the idea, he or she does it over and over again. They do it habitually. They don't simply believe. Remember what James says, the devil believes in God and trembles. 
You don't simply believe the Bible, but you actually do what the Bible says. You don't simply believe in Jesus, but you walk with Jesus. You don't simply believe in Christian traditions, but in the substance and content of that tradition, which promotes a love and a commitment to Jesus Christ. We don't simply believe in the church, but rather we believe in Jesus, who is the head of the church. Does that mean that that person will never make a mistake? No, we make mistakes. We do sin. First, John says, if we say that we sin, we're a liar. If we say we have no sin, we're a liar and we deceive ourselves. But it does mean that the person who turns from their sin and turns to the light, they repent and then they hang on to the truth. They hang on to their integrity. Jesus said the person who does the truth hears his voice. In John chapter 18, verse 37, remember, Jesus only has a few days to live. At most, he has a few hours to live. It says, Pilate said to him, are you therefore a king? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who hears my voice listens to the truth. You know what Pilate said? What? Is truth. He wasn't interested in hearing the truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way. Not simply a way, I am the way. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me. Why do you keep? Why do you keep? Why do you keep making it about Jesus? Because Jesus keeps making it about Jesus. Why do you keep saying that you have to be born again? Because the Bible says you must be born again. Why do you keep talking about the atonement? Because the Bible says you have to believe in Christ's atonement. Why do you keep talking about believing in Jesus? Because the Bible orders us, commands us, you must believe. We escape the darkness not by simply answering people's questions, but by doing the truth. I read a story this week. Once an architect came to Plato and he offered him for a certain sum of money to build him a house into which none of the rooms could possibly be seen. Plato said, I will give you double the money to build a house into whose every room everyone can see. It's only the evildoer who doesn't wish to see himself. And who does not wish anyone else to see him. Such a man will inevitably hate Jesus Christ. For Christ will show him what he is. And that's the last thing. That's the last thing he wants to see. It is the concealing darkness that he loves. And not the revealing light. So how do we practice the truth? John 6, 28. Then they said to him, what shall we do? What shall we do? What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Here's what Jesus didn't say. Go to church. Read your Bible. Give me money. Make sure you you join my church. Make sure you do a mission overseas. Make sure you do this. Make sure you do that. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. There you go. You keep making it about Jesus. By the way. When you do believe the father sent the son. You work the works of God. Now you can practice truth. Now you can live righteously. Now you can escape condemnation. George MacDonald wrote again, quote, a man's real belief is that which he lives by. What a man believes is the thing that he does. Not the things that he thinks. Are you living for Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? What is your reaction to Jesus? 
Because Jesus, Jesus exposes the truth about your heart. Jesus exposes the truth about your soul. Jesus exposes your condition. What do you think about him? Do you admire him? Do you love him? Do you want to know more about him? Well, then there's hope for you. But the moment that you say, I'm done. I'm done with the Bible. I'm done with Jesus. I'm done. Guess what? You are done. Pray that God will awaken within you something inside of you. I was remembering a song that was popularized by DC Talk this week by Charlie Peacock. He wrote, I keep trying to find a light on my own apart from you. I am the king of excuses. I've got one for every selfish thing I do. Oh, what's going on inside me? I despise my own behavior. This only serves to confirm my condition that I'm still a man in need of a savior. And he sings the song. I want to be in the light as you are in the light. I want to shine like the stars in the heaven. Oh, Lord, be my light and be my salvation, because all I want is to be in the light. Guess what? When that's what you want. That's exactly where you'll be. Free. Forgiven. Redeemed. Let's stand. I'm going to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person here. Lord, I pray for that king or that queen of excuse. One for every selfish thing I do. Lord, I pray that people would stop making excuses. Lord, I pray that they would come to the light. Lord, I pray that they would be born again. Lord, I pray that they would understand and accept the salvation of God in Christ because of his sacrifice. And I pray that they would believe in Jesus. We must be born again. We must believe in Jesus. And for each and every person here, Lord, I pray that they would take that step out of death into life. That they would take that step out of darkness into light. Lord, I pray that they would turn from their sin. They would would turn from their sin and they would turn fully and finally and immediately to you and embrace all that you have for them in Jesus. And if that's you and you've never done that, you can do that. It's as simple as crying out to God. I want to be in the light as you are in the light. I want to turn from my sin. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he was born of a virgin. I believe he lived the perfect life so that I could never live. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead. He's alive. He's really alive. I believe the testimony of God in Christ. If you prayed that prayer, then you've gone from darkness into light, from death into light. In Jesus' name, amen.